This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. I want to join in with the others in welcoming you here. Uh, if you're just catching up with us and you haven't uh, been with us in past services, we're going through a series uh, called It Really Happened. Um, today we're going to talk about Exodus and whether or not that really happened, whether or not there's any evidence outside the Bible that would explain that. And I know... Uh, We've been talking about this for months, and I remember when we got together and talked about it, some people were excited, but if they were like me, I was not looking forward to this. This is outside my wheelhouse. I'm not an expert on history. If there was any subject in college and high school that I struggled with, it was history, and here I am talking about it today. And I think many of the people that have had presentations or have presentations or come are going to tell you, I am not an expert on this. Do not count me as an expert. I don't care what I say this morning. Look at these things for yourself. If you want to go look at this stuff, it's out there. I know you've probably never heard of some of this. It's out there, and it's ready for you to review. Feel free to do that. I take no issue with you following up after me and doing some sort of audit or whatever you'd like to do because I am not an expert in this field. Now, Having said that, I hope you'll join in with me on a study of Exodus, and I'll try to prove to you, yeah, it really happened. This stuff really happened. And I think when you look at that and when you think about that, there's a lot more evidence that supports it than you probably have ever known. When I was looking through this, it was overwhelming how much was there. When we looked at these things and we shared these things, my subject versus Matt's subject versus Brit's subject, and we looked at these things, it was like, oh my goodness, how do we narrow this down? And it became a situation when we traded notes, it's like, hey, I, that's good information, but there's no guarantees I can use it because I've got too much already. And that's the situation we were in. And I hope as we go through this today, you'll understand that, and it'll be a blessing to you because that's really our goal, is that it can be, work for you and help you in your faith. We're going to talk about a few things to, uh, to begin with, a reminder on timelines, because this is something that I had to get through my head. I, I knew it. You've seen this since you were in grade school, the timeline uh, between the death of Christ and moving forward versus backwards. Uh, we typically see things on this side of the scale, uh, and it's a numerical order, 500, 1,000, 1,500, and as we count back, it's 1,000, 1,500, 2,000. When you see that written in my head, I don't know if I've got some sort of learning disorder or what, but it just doesn't calculate with me sometimes, and I have to sit and think through it. So I wanted to point that out this morning in case some of this is not making sense. The other thing we want to look at is a few definitions, um, not necessarily technical words, but just things that you've probably heard of and may not know a definition for it. Papyrus is a material prepared in ancient Egypt from pithy stem of water plant. They use this to ride on, to paint on, that type of thing. And when you look at it and you see these artifacts, typically they're written on papyrus just because that's what they used in that time frame. Second word we want to look at is Semitic. Many of us have heard that word. We may not know what it is. Semitic is relating to the peoples who speak Semitic languages, especially Hebrew and Arabic, and that's going to be important when we look at where people were and at what time. 
So we begin here with the book of Exodus. We start on this narrative and we can see and we can walk through it. We did a a book study on this in the past. This is going to be the quickest overview you'll ever see on an entire book. Beginning uh, at the top, it was written by Moses. It's the second book of the Old Testament. It's 40 chapters included in it. And it's a continuation after Joseph's death from Genesis. The overall history of God's people leaving the oppression of the Egyptians, establishing a new nation. And around chapter 20 is the conclusion of what most consider the exiting of Egypt. And the remainder is the establishment of a new nation and instruction on building the ark, the tabernacle, garments, and the altar. So, that's the overview of the book. Now, as we continue, we want to see what actually happened there. Is there any evidence to, to show that you actually had a people, a Hebrew people, in the nation of Egypt that exited into a land promised by God? In Exodus 23 and 31, it says, And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the Sea Philistia, and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Now God tells these people, he says, This is what I'm going to do. I've got this land for you. It's prepared for you, but you've got to go and take it. Don't you love that? Didn't say it was going to be easy, did he? But he said he'd be with them, and they believed him. And that's what they did. So when we look at this, you have an outline of what he was considered to be that. Based on this verse, that's what that outline would look. And you see many countries in modern day that fall inside of that. Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Syria. Those names we've heard of, those names we're familiar with. Now, some of those have changed. Boundaries have changed. We're going to talk about that a little bit uh, as we go. We're going to move fast because I want to get through all of this and... Some of this is just dry. (laughs) I hope you brought a bottle of water because it's dry. But we'll get through it. And I'll push through it as quickly as I can uh, so that hopefully I don't lose any of you. Now, we want to look at the plagues for just a little bit. We don't want to skip over that. If there's two events in Exodus that most people remember, it's the plagues and it's the parting of the Red Sea. Many of you are shaking your heads because, yeah, that's what I remember from the Exodus. We're not going to talk about parting of the Red Sea this morning. I know there's evidence in that area. There's things that people have found. There's chariots in the bottom of the Red Sea that Breathe is constantly reminding us of. But we're going to skip over that one this morning because I think most of us has heard those type of things. There's artifacts there that have been discovered that support some sort of army crossing over that sea at that time. We're going to spend some time on the plagues, though. If you remember, what were the plagues? River River turns to blood. The dust becomes lice. Their livestock die. Hail on the fields, destroying their grain. Three days of darkness. They were smitten with frogs. Swarms of flies were throughout the land. Bulls struck Egypt. Bulls appeared on their skin. Locusts were in the territory. And the Egyptian firstborn death, which was kind of the final straw where the Pharaoh said, okay, that's enough. (laughs) We don't need to go any further. But that's a summary of the plagues that appear in the book. Now, let's talk about being in the right place at the right time. That's never been the case for me. I'm never in the right place at the right time. I'm always on the other side, wrong place, wrong time. Now, if you look at this map, this has absolutely nothing to do with the Exodus. But I want to make a point this morning. What you're looking at is an old map of the U.S. And as we look over here, and I'm 
pointing over here like you guys can see. I'll back up a little bit and maybe you can. If you look on the right side of the map, this is what was known as the, the U.S. in 1803. And most of us are familiar with the Louisiana Purchase along with the Purchase of Florida in 1819. Now, if you look at this map, you can see the outline. Yeah, it looks like the United States modern day. But when you look at those boundaries, they don't apply today, do they? The Spanish can't come in here and take possession back of Texas and all of this area. It no longer belongs to them. The boundaries are different. So if we look in this map, where is this church building in this map? Well, if you look here, you kind of see, well, maybe a little bit of this line right here separating Texas and Oklahoma. See, it's always been there. We never wanted to cross that line, did we, Josh? There's the line right there. Well, if you come over from the, this way, if you go on Highway 152 and, and Highway 83, you're going to find the church building somewhere right in there. That's right, isn't it? No, that's wrong. This is the wrong map. You're looking at the wrong time in the wrong place. The church universal existed in 1803, but this building didn't exist until somewhere around uh, 2013, I believe. So we're looking at the wrong place at the wrong time. You're going to find that's what we do a lot when we look at this stuff. We look at the wrong place at the wrong time. Pushing on. When you talk about that wrong place, when we look at modern day maps of Egypt, we see this and we see these very dedicated lines that say this is Egypt inside of these borders. That's Egypt. But for what we have today, Egypt stretched many times what was known as Nubia down in here was controlled at that time. And you want to remember this Soleb Sudan. We're going to talk about something that was discovered there. So as you look at this map, it kind of gives you an idea. And what we talked about, well, this promised land was up in this area where the children of Israel were supposed to go. So we weren't necessarily looking up here in what's considered modern-day Egypt. Some of this stretched down in here. So... Dating, wrong place, wrong time. We're looking in the wrong place, we're looking in the wrong time. First Kings 6 and 1, we have a quote here. Solomon began building the temple in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, placing the Exodus around 1446. Now, where's the confusion? Modern day archaeologists will place that if it happened, if the Exodus actually happened, it was 1200 B.C., now, Gary's going to say a lot more about this, but where this came from, we had a misstating of, of events that happened in Jericho by an archaeologist in the 1950s named Kathleen, Ken Kathleen Kenyon. Scholarly consensus developed around that, and that's sort of where it came from to place the Exodus if it occurred in 1200. But if you're going to date something like this, you have to do it by the document. The documents points out that 480 years before Solomon built the temple was when they exited, placing it in 1446. So, there are other scriptures that you can date that from. It's done by people that are smarter than me, and I didn't have time to go into it. Judges 11:26 being one of them, and 1 Chronicles 6 being another. So, we're here talking about this, and many place it in 1200 B.C., but the Bible's going to place that at about 1400 B.C. And when you do that... When you move it away from 1200 B.C. to 1400 B.C., all of this stuff starts to line up. And it's amazing how well it lines up. 
So, again, if you're going to date a document, which they typically do, they do it based on the reliability of that document, which would be the Bible, which puts it in 1400 B.C. If you're looking for the Israelites in Egypt at 1200 B.C., remember, that's more modern, they would have already been gone. They've already exited Egypt at that point. You know, 200 years doesn't sound like a long time, does it? When we've heard about billions of years, and this happened 100 billion years ago. We're not to trillion yet, but i got a feeling it's coming. We're going to start talking about trillions of years ago. When you talk about 200 years in that time frame, it doesn't seem like it matters as much, does it? But when you get a realistic timeline of about 6,000 years, 200 years is significant. If you think about the U.S. turned 200 years old, on July 4th of 1976. That's pretty modern, isn't it? 200 years. This country was 200 years old in 1976. We're well on our way to 300 years if we make it. So it's something you got to think about. Then I have a quote down here. I have no idea what this quote is from. It could have been some mother talking to her teenage son, trying to get his shoes to take out the trash. But I felt like it was fitting. If you are trying not to find something then you will surely succeed. And we've seen that over and over. If we put up all these barriers and we put up all of these detours to say, oh no, it cannot be at that time, there's plenty out there that you can find. But if you believe the Bible, if you believe the evidence that supports the Bible, then it's going to place that at about 1400 B.C. Now, our first piece of evidence after all of that is the Papyrus Brooklyn. The Papyrus Brooklyn was discovered around 1700 B.C., that, so that was before the Exodus. It was found in southern Egypt around Thebes, and it contains a list of 95 domestic servant names. Now, not very interesting, right? It's old piece of paper. It's got a bunch of names on it. What does that mean to us? One of the big arguments of this time is, well, if you go back to 1400 B.C., there was no Jews in the land of Egypt. They were not there. Not there. Well, if we have this, we have a 95 domestic servant names. 30 are identified as Semitic. And that means they're Hebrew or Aramic. Nine of them specifically Hebrew names. Serving as servants within the household because they're female names. And that's typically what those slaves were used for if they were female were in the domestic situations for taking care of the household. Nine of those names. Now, that's not a lot of names. But those names are found in the Bible. It's not talking about these individuals, but these individuals have names that are shared with people from the Bible that we read today. So, what is this? That it's an attestation of Hebrews living in Egypt prior to the Exodus. So we have these people that are in a place they're not supposed to be, according to history and according to the archaeologists that have done this before, saying there's no people there of Hebrew descent. And we've got a list of them here on this papyrus. In Exodus 1 and 7 through 9, it says, And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. That's the account we have from the Bible. That they were everywhere. And then they suddenly say, well, there were none there. Well, we've got something that tells us that there were these 
Hebrew people were in the land at the right time doing the exact same thing that the Bible tells us they were doing. Moving on. Lepur papyrus. Uh, it's also known as the admonitions of an Egyptian sage. Excuse me, got tongue-tied there. Now, what is this thing? It's a poetic lamentation addressed to the All-Lord, typically understood to be the sun god Ra. And you're going to see this repeated over and over. This sun god Ra was just drilled into these people in Egypt. They put up temples. They served this guy. Everything they did centered around this sun god Ra. The poem describes a time in which the natural order in Egypt was severely disrupted by death, destruction, and plagues. So we're going to see what that leads us to. It was written by, named by a man named Lepur. He was an Egyptian. He was not Semitic. He was not Jew. He was an Egyptian. So we have somebody that was not out to prove any event that happened or occurred with God's people. He's just a guy. He's a bystander, and he's writing this. It was written, they found it, or let's see. Yes, it was written between 1300 and 1200 B.C. That's disputed, obviously, because of the 1200 age. And it, it placing it about 100 to 200 years after the Exodus. Now, that's important. It came after the Exodus, not before. If it's in 1200, it was before. But it was in 1400 when the Exodus occurred. That means it was 200 years after. And again, it places the Exodus at 1200 and puts this writing before those events occurred. Now, what are the parallels we see on this? What are the parallels? Why is this significant? The parallels we see in this guy writing this out, just suddenly it occurred to him to write these things to this sun god Ra. What did it talk about in there? The river is blood. There is blood through the land. Fields are burned and there's lamentation throughout. There's a plague and pestilence all over Egypt. There's a lot of death and death of children. The power of Ra is not seen, suggesting darkness. They were not able to see the sun for some period, and the grain is destroyed. Remember, we talked about that. There's disease causing physical disfigurement. As we talked about, the boils on the skin. The firstborn of the Pharaoh dies. The gods of Egypt are ineffective and lose some sort of battle. The kingship is overthrown. The Pharaoh is powerless over these things at the time. And the slaves take jewelry, silver, and gold. Now that's amazing, isn't it? When would you ever write about slaves taking anything from anybody? You wouldn't. And all of these things are parallels to the plagues that we see written in the book of Exodus. But we're led to believe that somehow this guy threw this out here. It's just some poem that he written, he, that he wrote, and it has nothing to do with the Exodus. So, we talked about this being after the Exodus, so it looks like an account of what happened at that time. If it were in 1200 and this guy wrote this, all of a sudden, you would think he was some sort of prophet because he went by letter by letter 200 years in advance writing this to parallel with that. It does matter when it happened. And it looks to be a parallel to the plagues that we read spelled out in the Exodus. The temple of Ammon at Soleb in Nubia. So the guy that... that uh, that I studied uh, behind, he had heard of this, and he was an archaeologist. He's a biblical archaeologist. He had heard about this thing, and when he went to look at it, he found some stuff written about it, but he, it just didn't satisfy him. 
So he decides, I'm going to go look at this thing. I'm going to take pictures of it. I'm going to touch it. I'm going to do whatever I got to do, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to write about this thing. So he goes out there. He flies into Khartoum, and it's about, I can't remember how far he said, but it's a long ways up to this thing. It's in what was Nubia, which is modern-day southern Sudan. It was built in the 15th century. It was built by Amenhotep III, and it was built to honor Amun-Ra, that sun god we talked about. Now, when this guy gets out there, he thinks he has security arranged, because you've got to remember, all of this stuff we're talking about is not in Christian areas. They are not Christian, and they couldn't care less about any of this stuff we're talking about. So when he got there, he thought he had security arranged, and what he actually had was somebody to secure him a visa to get in the country, and that was it. But he went ahead and he made the, made the trip to look at this thing, to put his eyes on it, to actually see it and study it. And it coined, uh, he actually inherited the name, the Christian Indiana Jones, over this event because every, when he got back, everybody was like, oh my goodness, yeah, you can't just go out there and do this kind of stuff. But anyway, what we have here, if you look here, this is the inscription that we're, we're concerned with right here. And you, if you look right here, you can see this doorway in this wall, and it's represented here as an over, in an overall picture of the whole thing. There's the doorway, there's the wall, which places this thing, this pillar column, It looks to be this one right here. And this inscription on it is what's important and what we want to talk about today. What this is is a list of territories claimed to have been conquered by Amenhotep III. And if you look back through those pharaohs, if you look back through there, it places him at the time of the, the uh, somewhere around the time of the Exodus. Now, one of the other things that you hear when you talk about the Exodus, well, the Exodus talks about these people roaming around in some sort of wilderness for 40 years, and we can't find anything on that. There's absolutely nothing. And if you talk to Gary, he's done some study on this as well, and he's gonna, we're going to kick it to him this afternoon. He's got some more on why they date things the way they do, and he even went through there and he saw where they'd found pottery and things like that, which is not that exciting, but hey, it's stuff that points to the fact that you had these people in the right place at the right time. So as we look at this, it's, it's listed by one of these similar carvings. Uh, each of these group of people, because what these temples were, if you look back at this, it was a temple, it's now been toppled, it was a temple to that sun god Ra. Now, the best I can tell from what I've studied on these temples is, it's sort of a bragging session for the Pharaoh at the time to say, look how great I am, God. His God, of course, not, not the God we serve, sun god Ra. Look how great I am. These are the, the boundaries and the territories that I, can, that I control, and these are the people that I have control over. Now, the upper body shows people conquered. If you look here, you can see it's just that's what they had. That's what represented the people and the territories that they were in. This upper body represented that. Now, you see the ties behind the back means they were conquered or they're in servitude in some way. To Amenhotep. Now, my guess is, just looking at the way they did things, if you're in an area that they control, they're going to claim that they have you in servitude to them. That's just the way it was. And I think that was the case here uh, when they had that. They're just out there in the wilderness. They know about them. They're just kind of there. They're not bothering anything. They just let them go. The lower oval, or the name ring, which is this thing right here, Along with others nearby, place the people in the 
Sorry about that. And the name ring along with others nearby, meaning other column uh, transcriptions, place it in the Canaanite region. So you had this group of people in the Canaanite region in the right place. The people depicted were Semitic and not African. So typically in these temples, you had these African countries that were conquered, or they may even have gone out, excuse me, they went outside of that, and these ones that were conquered were placed on these columns. The people here were not depicted as Semitic. They were, excuse me, I am all messed up right now. They were Semitic and not Egyptian or African, which is not typically what you found on those. They are identified as a nomadic people that worship the God Yahweh. Now, why is this significant? This is the first reference in history, in history outside the Bible, of Yahweh, and it is an Egyptian hieroglyphics. Amenhotep knew about these people. He knew they were nobads. He knew they lived in the wilderness at the right time, in the right place. And he knew they worshiped the God Yahweh. That is significant. Because we're led to believe that this doesn't happen. These people were never there. They never did the things that they said that they did. Amenhotep knew they were there. He put an inscription on a temple and laid it out and said, I was over these people. They were in my land. He recognized it. And so we see that. Now, I should point out that when you look at this, this is a new rendition. This is the actual one right here. That's what it looks at. When they did this, it's just to bring that out so you could actually see it. Now, this very thing was also found in other temples throughout Egypt. And they think it was a copy of this one because it was the, the, they dated it as the earliest temple. So this is not just a one-time occurrence either. It ha- they see this repeated multiple times. The right people in the right place at the right time. Now, why does any of this matter? Why does it matter? I've told you I'm not an expert in this stuff. I've tried to lay it out and give you a depiction of just a small sample of the evidences out there. But why does it matter? Why do we take time? Why did the elders think it was worth taking time on laying this out and looking at it? Why? Because we're to contend for the faith. We're supposed to do whatever we can to contend for the faith. Where have you heard any of these things? Any of the things that Matt presented, that, that Zane presented? Where do we hear those things? We don't hear these things, do we? We don't have the luxury of every time we turn on the TV, somebody is contending for the faith. Quite the opposite. They're pushing various agendas. They're wanting to point out these various things. They're doing all of these things to stretch these timelines And a lot of it's centered around grant money, unfortunately. There's a lot of different reasons that it happens. But there's nothing contending for the faith. And this morning, I hope your faith is strong. I hope whatever you face in life, that you face it head on, and your focus is on God, and you make it through whatever that is. I hope that's true for you. God bless you if that's the case. But some of us, it takes a little more. It takes anything that we can get from somebody contending for the faith to prove these things, to look at these things, to know that this stuff is out there. And if we look for it, we find it. We need that because of the things we face every day. 
You know, the podcast that provide, provided many of the points that, just, that, I, that I studied was titled, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. You know, that's kind of an ironic statement, isn't it? I don't have the faith to be an atheist. But the point is, you're going to believe in something. You're going to have faith in something. And it's either going to be faith in God or it's going to be faith in all of these other things that seek to disprove that. The other reason it's important, these subjects could be the one thing standing between someone else and God. And while it doesn't matter to your faith and you think your faith is strong and I don't need to hear all of these things, my faith is where it's at and it is unwavering. That may not be the case for someone else. And it could stand between them and salvation. You know, as Christians, we're faced with three questions. Does God exist? Is the Bible reliable? And who is Jesus Christ? Those are the things we have to contend with. And when we look at these things, and we let what, that middle one right there is the big one, and that's one of the reasons we spend, spend time on this. Is the Bible reliable? And I think what you've seen this morning is it is reliable. If you actually get in there and you look at the things that are being taught, there are issues with it. And when you line it up and you let the Bible stand on its own and you look and see if that's, those things are accurate, those things quickly fall into line that we're told couldn't, ha- couldn't possibly have happened. You know, the other reason it's important is every turn we're told our deepest and held beliefs are foolishness. We're told that every day. So much to the point we get tired of hearing it. So as we talk about these things and we think about these things, we need to remember that. I can't imagine being a 5 to 18 year old right now. Just can't imagine it. Times are different now. The things that we do are different now. The things that are taught are different now. And many of the, the educators that we see They don't value this stuff. They don't value it at all. I can remember the first time I'd ever even heard of evolution. It was taught by a uh, a man that was in the church. He taught evolution and he taught all the problems about it. You know, a lot of the kids these days, they don't have that luxury. They don't have the luxury of somebody guiding them through those things, showing them the issues there are with them. And that that is why we take the time to cover these things. I hope it's been helpful for you. As I said before, I hope your faith is unwavering because it's a whole lot easier if that's the case. But if it's not, I want you to know these things are out there. This evidence is out there. And these guys are doing their best to cover it and give you just a sample of the things that you can find if you go set out to study them. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.